I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the Sirens. Today we're discussing the 1944 film noir Laura, which was nominated for five Academy Awards and one for Best Cinematography. In it, New York detective Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, investigates the murder of the beautiful and admired advertising executive Laura Hunt, played by Jean Tierney, in her fashionable apartment. On the trail of her murderer, McPherson quizzes Laura's mentor and friend, the caustic columnist Waldo Lidecker, played by Clifton Webb, and her ne'er-do-well playboy fiancé, Shelby Carpenter, played by Vincent Price. As the detective grows obsessed with the case, he finds himself falling in love with Laura, despite the fact that she's dead. Or is she really? (laughs) (laughs) Dun-dun-dun! Dun-dun! Do you think that that sums it up well, Hill? Yes, I do. I think that like sums up the uh, this film about a successful woman who is surrounded by creepy men. Yes, yes. and leeches. And leeches. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I have to ask, had, had you seen this movie before this? Yes, I saw this movie a number of years ago. I can't remember when exactly. So I remember, I remember having seen it and, and like, remember like the feeling I had of watching it. But um, there were some pieces of the plot that I couldn't remember. What about you? So I thought I had never watched this. And then as soon as the film started playing, I had a vivid memory of the opening. Of the bathroom? Of yeah, seeing a like... naked Clifton Webb in a bathtub? <laughs> yeah, that scene apparently was like traumatizing to the actor too, because he saw how old he looked. He said he looked like Gandhi in the bathtub. Well, he probably just, like it was so. Why was he in the bathtub? And when, whatever. I have so many. I don't questions. know, but also, <laughs> also, I find that aspirational. Like writing in the tub sounds. I'm yeah. like a big bath person, so if I can do anything in the tub, I will do it. I'm not <laughs> tempted to write in the tub because it seems like it would raise some difficulties. <laughs> but um. <laughs> But if you're using a typewriter on one of those like stands, I do have one of those tray tables. So this is not out of the realm of possibility, but I do not write on a typewriter. So anyway, that <laughs> okay. scene is so such a weird opening that it really stuck with me. And I watched with Mike. He said he also remembered parts of the movie, but I only remembered like about the first third of it so Mm. i i can only conclude that either we just caught part of it on tv or we like rented it sometime like a long time ago and i fell asleep during it which is also highly probable (laughs) but it's just like once you've seen that opening like that's not something you would forget like the way that it was shot and everything so um very memorable it was Yes, I mean, there's. I think we have a lot to talk about. Yes. <laughs> um, what other trivia do you have? So I have a few, a few tidbits. The character of Waldo Lidecker was based on the columnist, broadcaster, and New Yorker critic Alexander Wolcott, uh-huh. who was a famous wit, um, and like Waldo, was fascinated by murder. And he always dined at the Algonquin Hotel, which was where Laura first approached Waldo in the movie. Mm. Um, And I did think, like, when I was watching it, I was like, this dude has to be based on somebody. And 
Alexander Wolcott was the person, I think he originated the Shouts and Murmurs column in the New Yorker. And he hung out with like Dorothy Parker and stuff. So it totally like a lot of his zingers did feel very like Parker-esque or like Algonquin round table yeah. <laughs> kind of commentary. So um, it made sense to me that he was based on a real person. Yeah. I thought this was interesting. Two minutes of footage was cut from the movie as it was originally screened, but then added back in when they restored it to Laserdisc. And in the deleted footage, Waldo described how he selected Laura's clothing and hairstyle, making her an extension of himself. And apparently 20th Century Fox was worried that that part would offend World War II soldiers overseas because it seemed too decadent um, and luxurious and not in line with like what should be happening on the home front. So they cut it (laughs) for the war effort. But I just thought it was interesting because that like particular scene really stood out to me in the movie as making um, Waldo seem extra creepy the way he was controlling her. And like it, you kind of, their relationship sort of is revealed as the movie goes on. But like that to me was like the point of no return of like, okay, this guy is like, this is like, a weird like power abuse type relationship and this guy is messed up yeah yeah so yeah I don't know if it would have played differently without that yeah I mean I think the there's still like creepiness like in other parts of the movie but I totally agree with you like that 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 those that the hair and clothing piece was like that was the moment that I was like um (laughs) get away Laura get away (laughs) yeah yeah and then why why would she go along with that i have a lot of questions about laura that we're gonna have to discuss the other part of the movie that i really remembered vividly as soon as it um started to play was the laura theme Mm. and that was composed by david raxon and it was such a hit that like a huge number of fans wrote to the studio demanding sheet music and recordings oh So 20th Century Fox asked Johnny Mercer to write lyrics to go with the theme. And then the song with the lyrics was a smash hit. It became a standard and it was, it's been recorded like so many times, but I think the most famous ones are by Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. And even in a send up by comedy band leader, Spike Jones. (laughs) What? And I went and listened to the Frank Sinatra version, um, which has like a full orchestra and all. And it did. I actually kind of liked it better without the lyrics, but maybe that's just me. It is very haunting. Did you like the music? I mean, the honestly, the I'm I'm adding the song to my like playlist right now. My um, <laughs> I mostly noticed the music when it seemed um, discordant or like incongruous. Like I, I didn't really notice it otherwise. There, like when he was when McPherson was in the apartment, like searching it, like it seemed mm-hmm. like their music just didn't really match what he was doing and that was really the only time that I noticed it it seemed like it did a good job of building tension Mm -hmm. in the movie like 
that's sort of a feeling of dread or I mean like you're saying with the discordance like something is off mm-hmm. um but I I liked it it felt like a more robust score than other noirs that I've seen mm-hmm. yeah so 20th Century Fox studio head Daryl F. Zanuck was opposed to casting Clifton Webb because of Webb's well-known homosexuality mm. but Producer and director Otto Preminger, is it Preminger? Mm-hmm. Preminger <laughs> prevailed, and the 54 year old Webb. He's a German speaker. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I mean, American pronunciations are all over the place. And the so this was Webb's first screen appearance since 1925. Wow. And they thought it was a gamble. Well, he was mostly doing theater. Yeah. And then he was nominated for an Oscar for it. But that was part of the reason he said he was so shocked to see himself on, like, how old he looked, because he hadn't been on screen in a really long time. And in theater, like, people don't get that close to you and you can just wear a lot of makeup. Like, he just came across as, I did not think he seemed like, oh, this man is obviously gay and would not be interested in law. Like, he just seemed very particular and Mm -hmm. sophisticated and... Mm -hmm. And opinionated and controlling like yeah his, his, everybody in the world yes <laughs> originally the movie was intended to be narrated first by waldo then by mark and then by laura hmm. um but mark's and laura's narratives were later dropped hmm. i don't i i feel like it wouldn't have worked as well well, we were one of the things that we had questions about was the narration. Like, what, why? Because it stops at some point in the movie and like it doesn't happen the whole time. So it seemed like, I mean, it was helpful, I guess, at the beginning, but like not really necessary. That's a good point because if he's narrating, you know, he knows that he did it. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, he can't be the narrator anymore. Right. That's a very good point. And also, it actually, so I think it worked well with him narrating, because when he first comes on screen, it's like this person so obviously seems like they did it, but it was almost like too obvious. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he narrated, I think, like sort of deflected attention away from him. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but it might have been interesting to get Laura's perspective, because like this movie is supposed to be about her and mm-hmm. it really like it doesn't feel like you really get to know her and it or what yeah. she thinks mm-hmm. um and my last piece of trivia is that vincent price was said to have considered this the best movie he ever made what i know <laughs> so i thought that would lead nicely into your bio because you bioed him right because i bioed him yeah he was 33 when he made this movie wow Yeah, so Vincent Leonard Price Jr. was born in 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. He was the youngest child of Vincent Leonard Price, the president of the National Candy Company. And his grandfather was Vincent Clarence Price, who invented Dr. Price's baking powder, the first cream of tartar-based baking powder, which secured the family's fortune. On his mother's side, they were descended from the first person... On the Mayflower, who actually was born in on you know on this side of the pond. What? Like, of course. Yeah. Of course so, he was. Rich and waspy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he attended 
uh, St. Louis Country Day School and Milford Academy in Connecticut, and then graduated with a degree in English um, and a minor in art history from Yale University. Later on in, in, or I guess over the course of his whole adulthood, he was very interested in art um, and art history and was known as an art collector. Um, and wrote frequently about art. So that was something that he carried throughout his life, even after he was a very successful actor. He taught for a year after graduating, then went to um, to an art school in London. Um, and surprising himself, he was drawn to theater and first appeared on stage professionally in 1934. <laughs> Um, and began performing with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. He started out in films as a character actor, making his film debut in um, Service Deluxe in 1938. And then his first venture into the horror genre, which was what he became widely known for, was in Tower of London in 1939. He appeared the following year in The Invisible Man Returns. And then... Uh, in 19 he, he he was in a lot of movies and and television shows and and on the radio and i'm only going to mention a few titles um in this bio because it, you know looking at his um his bio it was just he worked a lot um he appeared in laura in 1944 and then eventually re, uh, reunited with gene tierney uh, in leave her to heaven in 1945 um took on some uh, villainous roles in some other film noir thrillers over the course of the mid 40s and starred as a con man in The Baron of Arizona, had a comedic role in um, Champagne for Seizure and Caesar, sorry, <laughs> Champagne for <laughs> Caesar uh, in 1950, which was said to be one of his favorite film roles along with Laura. He was very active in radio um, and, as I mentioned, um, horror film roles in the 1950s, um, sort of what he, many people know him for. But he also appeared in some like religious films, including The Ten Commandments in oh. 1956. And, Who was he in that? Um, Baca? I don't know. <laughs> I have not actually seen the Ten Commandments. I'm like, so. you didn't watch it every year on Easter like no. I did with my extended family. No, I did not. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I will look for him next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the 1960s, he began a guest role on the television game show Hollywood Squares, where in which he became a semi-regular in the 1970s. Um, and he was... he appeared in a lot of television shows in the 1960s and 1970s and he was also on the radio a lot both in like just like uh general radio shows and also in horror and mystery series also uh so he, he was on radio and television in the fifth, fifth 60s and 70s um he also provided a monologue for the alice cooper song devil's food on a 1975 <laughs> uh album he was in a 1972 episode of The Brady Bunch, in which he played a Ooh, deranged archaeologist. And in 1976, he was featured as a guest on The Muppet Show. <laughs> and he also, in 1982, he provided the spoken word sequence throughout the Michael Jackson song Thriller. What? So he's like, his Vincent Price, well, surprising no one, like, 
is has been woven into a lot of like pop pop culture stuff like the 60s 70s and 80s he was inducted into the st louis hall of fame in 1989 he actually has two stars on the hollywood walk of fame one for tv and one for film his last significant film work was as the inventor in tim burton's edward scissorhands Mm -hmm. 1990 and he died at age 82 of lung cancer on october 25th 1993 and at his home in los angeles Wow. I I love that he seemed to not take himself too seriously based on the the roles and the gigs that he took on. Yeah. I mean, I read that he, like, in addition to acting, he was really interested in art, like I mentioned, and he also, like, wrote a bunch of cooking books with one of his wives. He had three wives. He apparently also, he didn't, like, immediately uh, think that Hitler was bad, but then pretty quickly, like, changed his ways, it seems, seems like, or, like, changed his opinion. And then one of his daughters came out as a lesbian at some point, and he was really supportive of her. So he was, like, very active as an actor, but also, like, very active just generally. <laughs> yeah. Arts and culture. It's funny because, like, I didn't even immediately put together that that was him when I was watching the movie. I, I mean, they said, like, I knew Vincent Price was in this movie, but I pictured him as old Vincent Price. Oh. Uh-huh. And I did not, like, put it together right away that that was him and then I was like oh I mean the thing that was sort of the giveaway was his voice yeah and it seemed like his voice didn't seem creepy in this because it had that southern accent kind of Mm -hmm. but it did have that sort of slow lilting Mm -hmm. serial killer kind of (laughs) vibe to it like slow lilting (laughs) yeah that later he could (laughs) use for all the horror movies yeah i thought his character was interesting because he was like also a bit like just not a good guy but he wasn't a murderer yeah yeah pretty much all the men in this movie seemed bad absolutely (laughs) i mean i guess like you could say mcpherson the detective wasn't he was the least bad maybe of all the guys but he wasn't good no he was he i mean it was unclear how much he was just like putting up a front as Mm -hmm. the detective but he was pretty callous yeah to everyone throughout and then mike sort of so what did you make of the whole thing with the baseball like ball game oh my god i love that i love did you so much did you like how they actually like zoomed in on it so that you could watch him do see the game yeah i loved that so much i was like that is like that's like the all the the like the original like fidget spinner the original like i'm just messing around on my phone uh, I love that he was like, this is the only thing keeping me from like knocking your head off or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the, so I thought that it was like maybe his way of sort of disarming people when he was questioning them by making it seem like he didn't pay attention to them that much. Mm-hmm. I like maybe disarming in like a, like sort of a negative way of like not in a like I'm trying to make you feel better it's more of a like I'm gonna make you think that I'm not paying attention so you'll like reveal something like unintentionally yeah and but the the part
part about that that seemed problematic to me was like if he wasn't actually looking at them wouldn't he miss a lot of like physical and like facial cues when they were taught like in terms of giveaways that they were lying and stuff or do you think that doesn't matter I mean it seemed to me like based on what he was saying that he had already done like a huge amount of research and like you know that he could like say like you know to Ann Treadwell like you know you took out a hundred you know fifteen hundred dollars and um you know later that day Shelby deposited twelve hundred dollars and you know you took out seventeen hundred dollars and later that day he deposited fifteen hundred dollars to me it seemed like the questioning was kind of a just like uh it was like not like he needed to do it to just like confirm what he already knew. So he was just like waiting for, you know, the people to join him in like the research that he already did. What about, okay, can we just talk about Laura for a bit? So I felt a bit confused or like there wasn't enough of a bit transition or something between Lidecker like telling her off at the Algonquin and then him coming to her office to apologize and take her out mm-hmm. because he was very rude to her and did not show that he was at all taken with her or anything at the restaurant. And then it seemed like he just thought about it and then he came back and he was like, I want to apologize. And also I'm going to make you like my doll or like plaything or something. Yeah. That, I mean, where what do you think motivated that? I mean, it seemed to me like like that like transition for him just like underscored for me that he was a creep and he was just like very like volatile and very um sort of, you know, did like outrageous things on a whim because it did seem like totally like an about face that he he like blew her off and then suddenly he was like, "Wait a second. I'm taken with her and she's mine." If I can't have her, no one can have her. Yeah. It did seem like, I feel like this movie also probably has something to say about aging. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't have a kind attitude towards someone who was aging, but could still sort of long for youth and beauty. I mean, I don't think he was explicitly longing for those things, but like yeah. he had desire for that about Laura and it just made him out to be kind of a psycho, but... I've definitely seen other films where they deal with this kind of subject matter where like a much older person falls in love with someone young and they do it in a way that's more tragic about the older person, (laughs) you know, (laughs) instead of creepy like um, Ladies in Lavender, which was a very good um, dames movie with Judy Dench and um, oh, yeah. Maggie and the, there are like elderly women and one of them falls in love with a young Emile Hirsch well, like who wouldn't fall in love with young Emile Hirsch who washes up on your shore but it was just kind of shown as like a sad movie like youth passed them by didn't get love and like in this movie it, it was just curious to me that like here he is as an older man and like was this he was so theoretically in love with her but like I was I was just curious about like what is his past like has he had other relationships was he always drawn to like physical beauty Mm -hmm. well and it seemed to me like you know because he was like a New York commentator and he was like a famous writer and like broadcaster before like that's why Laura approached him was because like he had name recognition he was famous 
like it seemed to me kind of like I what I said earlier that like he you know he was used to people listening to him and like he like to get rid of the lovers that Laura had that he didn't like he like wrote in his column about like you know whatever the whoever the guy was to like totally emasculate the guy and um you know make Laura like think less of the guy you know it just seemed like he was used to like getting what he wanted when he wanted it and like in the way that he wanted it and you know just like a a grade a like jerk (laughs) yeah I mean that was the thing it I found it hard to believe like I don't I don't think he really did love her Mm -mm. like it was it was more like an obsession yeah that uh, yeah possession is the word (laughs) because he just wanted to mold her into Mm -hmm. so it it seemed like I mean the only thing I could think of is that he just was like oh that was a really beautiful girl and I bet Mm -hmm. I could make her into like the ideal woman yes yeah so he tried to do it and it was almost more about like having this perfect thing than actually loving a person yeah and you know John and I were talking about Laura in like in her role in that relationship because like in some ways there's not a lot like there was a big power differential because he was rich and famous and she and old and she was young and new to her career you know and a woman and you know beautiful and young and and she like yeah she like moved up her career into an executive level in part thanks to his connections but she also like kept her eye on the ball. Like it seemed to me she like, yes, she like, like, you know, let him like make over her makeup and hair and clothes. But it also seemed to me like she wasn't a dummy. She was, she was like, Oh, I can get some free clothes out of this. Like, sure. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing is that like, so that that's all sort of subtext. Mm-hmm. But the only way the movie makes sense is if that stuff is true, because otherwise it doesn't make sense that she would have gone along with just this random dude. Like no one, if she was really this, like, you know, everyone's like, she's so kind. She's so good to everybody. Like she's, she's such like a, a wonderful person. But if she was really that way, I don't think she would have like taken all of this stuff from this old dude who like clearly was pursuing a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive because she also like, you know, she saw Shelby and was like, yeah, I'll give you a job. Like she taught, I mean, maybe she was in love with him, but I think, you know, she, she seemed, she must've been like had enough like business acumen, like because she had an apartment in the city and a house in the country, like that was totally hers. And, um, and it didn't seem like Lidecker had like access to that house. So it wasn't like- something he gave her like she was successful enough to to get that and you know and and to run a business yeah she did seem successful like just the fact that she went up to him at all at the Algonquin and just Mm -hmm. did that cold pitch Mm -hmm. showed that she was ambitious yeah and like he got her the connections which enabled her to further her career but the part where like like and I could see all of that happen I guess what I'm the part that's confusing me is like if he's like 
telling her like you have to do your hair this way and she's doing it i assumed he was paying for stuff too like oh yeah for mm-hmm. her to get dresses so like you know what is the name what did she think was going on mm-hmm. you know because at certain a certain point in the like earlier in the movie and i only remembered up to a certain point so i really didn't know what was going to happen i was like did she sleep with this old guy at some point like how is their stuff being mm-hmm. exchanged like she's managing to like get him to do all this stuff for her but keep him at arm's length but also like he's her best friend like what is going on <laughs> mm-hmm. like I didn't understand the real nature of their relationship like she was actually dining with him privately twice a week mm-hmm. you know like the, so that's the part that confused me because I thought like she if it's if what the girl we're supposed to believe in the end of the movie who's like she still feels so bad for him she still wants to listen to his broadcast and she's so kind like she wanted to take care of like I just had a hard time believing that that girl would also be the girl who would kind of like string this guy along Mm -hmm. for a very long period of time yeah and like take a lot of expensive stuff from him it was a like that was a long game because if she went from like office girl to ad executive (laughs) that that would have taken some time yeah there's a possibility maybe that like she was a good companion for him even if they didn't like sleep together and like that maybe was enough for him because he he felt like he had exclusive rights and maybe that was fine with her as well like to enjoy another person's company until like you know she met like a younger guy that she did want to sleep with and like have like a more romantic encounter with and so like maybe it's not like uh like outside the realm of her like that nice girl like kind girl like personality that she would you know like genuinely be friends with him you know on the other hand you like when he starts to when Lidecker starts to like like dig up stuff about Shelby you know that seems like a like she's like why are you why are you doing this like she doesn't totally understand that he's like trying to control her and yeah she seemed it was just strange like she seemed obtuse in some ways Mm -hmm. but then like part of me almost wished see it was this just felt different from other film noirs in that Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's like a femme fatale and like she's really depicted as like she's screwing over these men. She's like getting her money the way she can, getting other people to murder people. And like Laura did it like use somebody to get what she wanted, but she's also depicted as this angel who like everyone's obsessed with. And that Mm -hmm. depiction is unadulterated at the end of the movie. Yeah. So I just thought that was different. And (laughs) what did you think of the maid Bessie I mean I felt bad you know at the end where like she comes in like is totally horrified that uh Laura is still alive and like shocked and then they're like there there it's really me a ghost wouldn't ask you to make eggs and then (laughs) like make me some eggs (laughs) (laughs) yeah they they were pretty awful to her when she even when just the detective was there and she came in, she was like, well, I was paid through the end of the week, so I'm still going to show up and clean. I was like, lady, just take your body. Like, that's a dead person's house. Just leave. Like, yeah, it's not no. going to be like, no one's going to have done any dishes that need you to clean or 
but it reminded me a little bit of um Rebecca but like mm-hmm. Rebecca was you know more of a negative character but just the way everyone was obsessed with her and everyone was like Laura Laura we're all in love with Laura yeah totally oh <laughs> it's funny <laughs> that you say that because uh Judith Anderson who plays Anne Treadwell is in Rebecca and Laura <laughs> oh interesting overall thoughts of this movie I have to say that I thought it was a really good movie mm-hmm. I don't know if I even said that up front like this is gonna get a good rating from me I'm just gonna <laughs> like tip my cards now and say <laughs> yeah I mean when we were we started watching it I was like oh, all the men are creepy and then I I don't know I all the men are creepy but I think she holds her own and I to me that like I don't know yeah I really enjoyed I really enjoyed this movie and enjoyed watching it and like even though it was like kind of creepy and and sad for this model that is you know mistaken for Laura and murdered brutally who no one seemed to care about by the way I know Like, when it was revealed that the, it was the bottle, like, no one even said, like, Shelby was just kind of like, oh, well, gotta protect Laura. <laughs> like, yeah, that part was sad. And, like, I was glad that they actually had Laura not be dead because I was worried this was going to be one of those movies where, like, the heroine is murdered and you only see them in flashback. Mm-hmm. And so when she actually came in, it felt like she brought a lot of lightness to the screen and for someone who was accused of murdering she didn't seem that worried about anything so she seemed to have a lot of calm about her which I felt like shifted the dynamic of the movie in the Mm -hmm. later part Mm -hmm. I read that too a very like calming presence (laughs) even in that last scene where she's like in her house by herself I was like I don't know if (laughs) If I had an apartment by myself and in which somebody was murdered because someone thought that she was me and she died, like, I wouldn't want to be in that apartment by myself. I mean, she didn't have a ton of great options, but like, you know, I would, if I were her, I would go to a hotel and be like, I'm going to stay where there's people. Yeah. That the part where everyone, and also the detective, he was like, I'm just going to like hang out in this apartment where someone was murdered and fall asleep here. I was like, no don't do, like don't do that it's people seemed very cavalier about yeah. the murder yeah um what did you think of the romance between laura and mark the detective i mean i found that very ne- unconvincing oh yeah. <laughs> same this is the one like negative point in the negative column for laura i'm like really you just like you went out to the country ostensibly to think about whether or not you were marrying Shelby. You decide not to come back and you've been murdered. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a detective and you fall in love with him. What? Yeah. Oh, after like no kind of like personal exchanges, just interrogation. <laughs> yeah. And if uh, Lidecker had not spelled it out that Mark was in love with her. No. I would not have gotten that at all from him. No, I would not have either. Which so. to me said that, like, I wondered if, like, I wonder if McPherson even, like, understood that. And if, or if Lydecker was just enough of a, like, like, spin doctor and, like, you know, controlling of other people's, like, feelings and perceptions of reality that, like, that 
he partly like was like oh well you're in love with her and he just like coming from a uh, a point of view of like everybody must be in love with Laura because she's like a perfect goddess of a woman you know so I wonder like if he intentionally or unintentionally was also manipulating like Mark's perception yeah that that when he first said that I assumed that that was some sort of ploy Mm-hmm. And then when it played out to be like, oh, actually, he is in love with her. And she somehow reciprocates based on nothing. Based on nothing. But that's how a lot of these like movies from this time period go. Like someone just shows up and they're like, wait, uh, uh, we're in love. <laughs> we're we're going to kiss now. That that was the weakest part of the movie to me, which is not to say anything bad about uh, Dana Andrews performance. I thought he was really good, but like it wasn't there in the script that he was in love with her yeah and what did you think about the fact that we had just seen him in the best years of our lives well yeah i mean like jen hadn't watched the best years of our lives with us this time but she and i had watched it you know many years ago and so when we got through this movie she she said like i don't think i've seen danny andrews in anything and i was like oh you saw him in the best years of our lives and i remember like best years of, of, of our lives was like a departure for him like it was a different kind of movie and so it was i actually appreciated having the like close seeing two of his movies for the contrast yeah it, it they were such different characters mm-hmm. it made me appreciate his acting more mm-hmm. um and also i just i really like gene tierney and mm-hmm. i think she's underappreciated yeah and we haven't seen her in anything in a long time no we haven't we should do more i mean i was just remembering her bio and how she kind of then fell into obscurity after a while mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's i when i was reading for the trivia it sounded like she did like she didn't have a lot of confidence about her performance in this role like she was like i don't think i did anything great <laughs> if the movie was good it wasn't because of me oh my gosh and then um vincent price was saying like this movie would not have been as great as it was without her so like everyone else thought she was great but she did like, not credit herself <laughs> I know, but I also remember she had some, like, I remember her personal life was bad and she had some mental health struggles and stuff. So who knows what was going on with her when she made this movie. But yeah, I I overall liked it. And I liked seeing some some of these actors doing something different. Mm-hmm. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Are we ready to talk back to Sure. Do you think it passes? I mean, I think there's some, there's like one exchange between Bessie and Laura that's like, that passes. But the only other, like, but Bessie's not that developed of a character. And the only other, like, exchanges are between Anne Treadwell and, and Laura and they're think they're all about men yeah it didn't feel to me like like the the movie felt very Mm -hmm. dominated by these three men who were Mm -hmm. sort of you know all looming over her so Mm -hmm. like but i i feel like there should be some sort of like special bonus points somewhere for a movie depicting a woman ad executive in the 1940s who's like living independently Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it would be interesting to I wonder if somebody's written about this, like, you know, this care like Laura and like Mildred Pierce and like other um, women who work. 
women who work yeah outside of the home in like leadership positions and um are they all doomed to lives of lives related to murder and mayhem well it even i mean it's funny that you brought up mildred pierce too because it seems like if a woman is afforded a successful career in a film like this then it's like her love life is crap and she mm-hmm. always like it's always like some kind of playboy i mean this is a theme that continues now like in movies that there's a woman who's successful but she can't get a man she can't keep a man yeah <laughs> or like whoever she's with is like in some way like severely disappointing or unfaithful or whatever mm-hmm. so i don't know i mean i think my i think it doesn't pass that's you think my... it does not pass okay we're of accord yeah <laughs> we all want to help one another human beings are like that we want to live by each other's happiness not by each other's misery um what about any kind of social justice themes i mean i feel like bessie's <laughs> pulling a lot of weight here like saying like you know you don't need to call me miss like i i know i'm a domestic and i you know i don't have any bones about it and that's who i am and the work that i do and you know how dare you like uh take liberties in my like employers like personal life and she's very proud of being um, a maid you know i guess like taking pride in her in her work and her position which i like appreciate but it's a very very small part of this movie yeah i did think the way that she talked to the detective and like when she said like you know where i come from we spit on the ground when a cop walks by or whatever yeah like it was very emphatic and it did show that she like took some pride in herself and mm-hmm. you know wasn't going to be pushed around just because mm-hmm. she was of a lower class so that was something mm-hmm. but beyond I mean there wasn't a lot that was like overt about class except that like for the most part everyone seemed very rich mm-hmm. <laughs> um unbelievably oh. rich yeah like when she's going to her country home and she's like oh i went to get my car i was like who lives in manhattan and has a car like what um she just keeps it in that that private garage near the train station yeah um but i did think it could it could also have something to say that basically like if she had not allowed lidecker to take her under his wing so to say she probably would not have been able to advance mm-hmm. because it all seemed to happen through his connections. So I think, you know, it might have something to say about her having to like in some way compromise herself mm-hmm. to be able to advance because like it kind of looked like in the beginning that she was just sitting with a bunch of other like office girls together and she mm-hmm. her clothes didn't look as fancy then or anything and yeah um that was what she had to do to kind of yeah advance her career as a yeah. woman on madison avenue <laughs> yeah turns out <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but it's it's not very social justice no <laughs> <laughs> strong women strong woman maybe (laughs) doing what you have to do yeah either like very stealthy 
or showing some poor judgment. Unclear which. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. I would have liked to see like a little more in Baxter and her just being overtly like, this yeah. is what I did. <laughs> this is what I do. Like, I want to get ahead and be rich and famous. And like, this oh is it. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is like, this is like, we, we need to, we need to do something with Mildred Pierce, all about Eve. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Stay tuned for our thesis <laughs> Women at Work in 1940s movies. Yeah. Um, well, so what rating would you give this film? Um, I mean, probably a 4.5, I think. I think, like, there are, you know, we've talked about some of the, like, things that seem unclear to us, and those are the, the things that, for me, make it a 4.5 and not a 5. I would definitely watch this movie again like sooner rather than later um just partly to like see if like what the things were that i missed but mm-hmm. um you know and see if the like watching it on a rewatch it like would become clear to me um i mean the men were creepy and i didn't that was like not uh fun to watch but, but mm-hmm. um yeah what about you i'm gonna go even higher and I, I think I'm going to give it a 4.8. Wow. I know. I just thought it was a very well done film. And we didn't even talk about the cinematography, which is like what it won the Oscar for. But yeah, the way the shots were set up yeah. was just so cool. Like the, yeah. with the portrait of Laura, like over people's shoulders when they're mm-hmm. doing things like the lighting was really cool in the mm-hmm. movie too. And it was very tightly written also. Yeah. Like things that were mentioned early in the film on an offhand way came back later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. Like the clock, the whole clock thing. Yeah. I thought that was that was a very clever way to hide the murder weapon too as someone who enjoys mysteries <laughs> I, I liked that <laughs> um so yeah I thought it was great like the performances were really good I would definitely rewatch it um I think it would be a good film to teach plot plotting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I have a soft spot for Gene Tierney so <laughs> all of those things like as I was watching it with Mike I was like oh I really like this <laughs> I would you could see why it's like on all these lists as like mm. I think it's one of the it's considered one of the top 10 best noirs ever made and mm-hmm. gone down in history I think for a reason and I'm glad that we picked it because how sad is it that I watched like the first third of it at some point and then never I know like I got know. past that <laughs> no it is very sad <laughs> I'm glad that you've seen all of it now all the way through <laughs> Uh, so what is our next movie? Okay, so our next movie is Strangers on a Train. Yay! Yay! May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. Leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. And become a patron at patreon.com slash The Screen Sirens. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day. Thank you.